Hi, everyone. So uh, we'll get started. First of all, uh, the link to the translational interpretive dance is on the last slide of the lecture, I think. It should be up there. So if you want to check it out, it's a lot of fun. Uh, this was done in this, I want to say the 70s. It's, it was done at Stanford, actually. These are all Stanford, I think, undergrads who got together and decided. So the puff of smoke is GTP hydrolysis. So this, so, to some, look at this guy. Um, I don't know who the angel of death is there, but. Um, so basically, uh, these, um, these, these kids got together and decided to, to, to dance this out, which is pretty fun. Uh, and even at that time, there was a reasonably good idea how translation happened. So they've got a, a ribosome, a 30S, and a 50S. Uh, there's an A site and a P site. Uh, there's no E site. They hadn't figured out the E site at that point yet. And this is in prokaryotes. But they figured out, and it's fun to look at some of the captions that come up and, and some of the names changed for some of the factors um, and some of the terms. But it's basically all there. There goes another GTP hydrolysis. Oh, here comes a stop, stop code on. So then they're going to release the peptide chain, and they're all going to go dancing around. It's great. Um, oh, here we go. Here's release factor. Some sort of bird. I don't know. Some of them are very good dancers. And you should check it out also because the music's really cool. The music is really, well, it's very 60. And here comes the protein. They're super jazzed about getting released. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. This is actually a, a, a scientist at uh, Stanford who does the intro. It's pretty neat. Uh, the music's fun, so I, I highly recommend it. So you should check it out if you're bored. OK, so this is where we got up to last class. We talked about, um, we talked about some different um, modifications on uh, proteins, and we we're going to cover ubiquitin, but we didn't quite get to ubiquitin, so we'll cover ubiquitin now, and then we'll get into mechanisms of gene regulation. So, so most of what we've been talking about so far has been about um, protein synthesis, or initiation of a gene expression, right? But just as important, and often underappreciated, is the idea that the amount of proteins or RNA that you're going to have in a cell is not only related to the rate of its synthesis, it's related to the rate of its degradation or decay. Right? If you think of the amount of steady state amount of protein uh, in a cell as the amount of water in a sink, well, you can, and if, if there's a tap that's running at a certain rate, you can increase the amount of water in the sink by opening the tap more or by plugging the drain more. If you slow down degradation, if you slow down or accelerate degradation, that's also going to have an effect on how much water's in the sink. Right? It's not just about the water going in. It's also about the water going out. So um, by far the most commonly uh, studied and, and, and most abundant um, mechanism by which proteins are targeted for degradation is, this, is the linkage of proteins with this molecule called ubiquitin. And this is often the way also that protein degradation is regulated. And I'll talk about that in a second. So what's ubiquitin? Ubiquitin is this small protein. Um, on the order of 70 amino acids, I think, 
Um, that, so, you know, that's just cartoon uh, shown here as ubiquitin. And it's got this carboxylic acid group. This refers to the carboxylic acid group on the C-terminus of ubiquitin, right? So this is the, the COOH of the last amino acid. If you were going to put another amino acid on, then you'd make a peptide bond to this. But because this is the last amino acid in ubiquitin, they're just showing here for convenience. And the idea is ubiquitin, or ubiquitin, or at least chains of ubiquitin, not one ubiquitin, but multiple ubiquitins, are covalently linked to a protein that's going to be targeted for degradation. We'll talk about how it's going to be degraded on the next slide. But this is how ubiquitin gets ligated onto a protein that's going to be targeted for degradation. This is kind of cascade of three enzymes, an E1, an E2, and an E3. Okay? Uh, and, and by virtue of these three enzymes, your target protein is going to be tagged for degradation. So we start with the E1 enzyme okay, here. It uses an ATP hydrolysis to an AMP to covalently link a ubiquitin to a cysteine on E1. So there's a cysteine on E1 that's got a sulfur group on it. And then using the energy of ATP hydrolysis, you get this thioester, this bond between this sulfur group and this now what's now a carbonyl. It used to be a carboxylic acid group, and now it's this carbonyl. So you get this thioester. So now the ubiquitin is covalently linked to the E1 enzyme. Right? And you had to burn an ATP, an ATP to AMP to do that. The E1 then transfers the ubiquitin from the cysteine on E1 to a cysteine on an enzyme called E2. Right? So E2 is this basically this conjugating enzyme, which is basically the substrate to put the ubiquitin on the target protein. Right? And that's done by this enzyme called E3. You have this E3 ligase. E3 like, the E3 is the protein that recognizes the target protein as a substrate for being degraded. And what happens is the ubiquitin gets transferred from the E2 that's carrying the ubiquitin to a lysine of the target protein. Okay, so there's a lysine on the target. And when that's done, now the target protein has a ubiquitin attached to one of its lysines. Right? So that target, target protein has now been mono-ubiquitinated. It's got one ubiquitin on it. That is not sufficient for it to be degraded. In fact, and this is an emerging field, uh, there's a lot of study on this, and there's actually quite a few people at York that study this. Uh, one ubiquitin on a protein is not used to degrade it. It's used to regulate the protein in some way. It will change the activity of the protein. Often it changes the location of the protein in the cell. It can change whether it goes to the, goes to the nucleus or the cytoplasm. So monoubiquitination is not associated with degradation. It's only associated with, with some sort of process that has to do with what the function of the protein is, usually. But what will happen is if a protein is to be degraded, then this process will repeat. And you're going to get a ubiquitin chain on the, on the protein. The subsequent ubiquitins will be added to a lysine on ubiquitin. Okay, so the first ubiquitin gets put on a lysine on the target protein, and the next ubiquitins will get put on a lysine that's on ubiquitin. Okay, so you get this chain of ubiquitins, multiple ubiquitins on it. And that's, that's the signal for degradation, and we're going to talk about the degradation on the next, next slide. So typically cells have one E1 enzyme. There's only one enzyme in the cell that will activate ubiquitin, okay, that will, that will become ligated to ubiquitin. 
through that ATP hydrolysis. And then you, have a, you, have, you may have a few E2s and you have many E3s. E3 is the enzyme that's actually recognizing the target and in a regulated way is targeting that target protein for degradation. So you can imagine that there's a lot of proteins whose degradation has become regulated. And so basically the activity of a particular E3 enzyme will regulate how much of that protein there is in the cell. So you need a lot of E3s, right? Not just one. If you only had one E3, then you'd be controlling the degradation of every protein in the whole cell that relies on ubiquitin to be degraded. But because you have many E3s, if that E3 ligase is turned on or turned off, then you're going to have a certain cohort of target proteins that are going to be targeted for degradation. One of the most famous E3 enzymes is an enzyme called MDM2. This is an E3 that degrades a protein called P53, which you may come across in your subsequent lectures. P53 is a major cancer-associated protein. People always thought, or people often thought, and it's true, that mutation of P53 can, cause, can lead downstream to cancer. And that's true, but sometimes they've discovered some cancers. The problem isn't P53. It can also be the protein that controls how much P53 in the cell is. That is the E3 ligase, E3 ligase for P53, right? So this MDM2 protein, you can also have mutations in that. And that can also cause cancer because when you have mutations to the E3 ligase for P53, you're basically going to change how much P53 there is in the cell without actually having mutated P53. Okay. So basically, you've got this signaling cascade that's going to control how much of a particular protein you have in a cell by its abundance through degradation. How is the protein degraded? It goes to this machine called the proteasome. That's shown here. So the proteasome is made up of uh, kind of two bits. It's, it's big, all right? So we're used to talking in S with respect to, to ribosomes, right? 30S ribosome, 50S ribosome. These terms, S, always refer to, the term S always refers to the behavior of a particle when it's being sedimented in a centrifuge, okay? So whenever you see something has an S on it, you can presume it's large. It's quite large. So the 26S proteasome is quite big. It's made up of many subunits. That's made up of two pieces, a 20, 20S core particle here, okay, which is made up of alpha and beta subunits, and a 19S regulatory particle. Together, they make the 26S. Again, these things don't necessarily add up because, uh, you know, obviously 20 and 19 don't make 26, but this whole particle sediments at 26S, it's, it, where it sediments will be based on both its shape and its size. And so what happens is this core particle is the bit that does the degrading. All right, it's got the proteases inside. It looks like a donut. If you look down the middle of it, it looks kind of like a donut, and the protein's being fed into the hole of the donut, and the proteases are in there. Okay? And so here's your protein that's being targeted for degradation. It's got this polyubiquitin chain on it. The polyubiquitin chain is what brings it to the proteasome. Okay, that's what says, hey, that's what makes the proteome say, hey, I should degrade this. The ubiquitins are removed as the protein is degraded, and the protein is fed into this kind of tunnel, this middle of this donut, and one by one, the amino, ac the amino acids are removed. It's kind of like a garbage disposal. It's just going to shred your pro or a pr paper shredder. It's just going to shred your protein into individual amino acids again. Okay? And then you can basically recycle those amino acids.
Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. So the question gets back to that non-ubiquitin nation. If a protein had one ubiquitin on it, just this one, say, not these ones, that protein would not be targeted by the proteasome. Instead, that protein is going to be changed in some way with respect to its activity. Often it has to do with the subcellular localization. It has to do with whether it's in the nucleus of the cytoplasm. Okay? When it has multiple ubiquitins on it, that's going to change. That's going to be a target for degradation. Right. Okay, so that's a good point. So the question has to do with, with the fold of the protein. Yes, as the protein is being degraded, it's being kind of unwound or uh, pulled, like, effectively denatured from one end to the other. Okay, it's being basically, the native protein has a particular tertiary fold, and as the protein goes in, it's basically being fed in. Uh, this, this bit that's being fed in is going to be relatively unstructured. It's just going to be a, a chain. Okay. All right, so we're going to talk today about regulation of gene expression. All right, and we're going to cover some basic principles. Um, there's a whole course on this, uh, which you may find interesting. Um, it's a course I also teach. I'll be teaching it in winter. It's third year course. Um, and the reason that there's a whole course on this is because, you know, this is where a lot of the research happens, okay? Um, you know, we kind of have a reasonably good idea how you make ribosomes and how you generally transcribe a messenger RNA. What people are, care more about and what people get funding for is understanding why you turn on this gene at this time and off at that other time or why this cell has these genes on and not those genes or why when you have this disease, a genetic disorder or who knows what, why there's a um, defect or a, a lack of, of organization uh, as to how, or, or a lack of, of coordination for how different genes are being expressed, right? So, um, and so this is basically what a lot of molecular biology is based on. So we've kind of covered these principles already. You know, consider two human cells, a muscle cell, a liver cell, they have the same DNA. How is that these become two different types of cell? It has to do with the different genes that they express, right? The different, and we're gonna focus on messenger RNAs, obviously. That's gonna be the protein coding genes, right? Um, and they're gonna have different messenger RNA complements in each cell, and as a result, different protein cohorts, okay? Uh, this is just to give you an idea of the different amounts of complexity in different systems. An E. coli bacteria has on the order of 4,000 genes. You know, it was recognized pretty early that the amount of DNA in a human compared to E. coli, humans have much, much, much more DNA than E. coli, but a smaller increase in the amount of actual genes. It was presumed that because we have so much more DNA than E. coli, well, then we must have so many more genes because we're so much more complex than just a bacteria. We're awesome, bacteria are stupid, so we must have all this extra awesomeness packed up into our genome. It's true, we do, but not as much as we thought. Once we actually sequenced the genome and looked at the actual number of protein coding genes there are, well, we're not actually a thousand times more awesome than E. coli. We're, we're barely five times more awesome than E. coli. 
So um, that was a bit, um, there was a bit of humility that came along with that. But um, what we now appreciate better is that it's not just the number of genes that matter, right? It's the, what we do with those genes and the complexity associated with, with those genes. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today also. So uh, a couple of terms that's going to help us as we talk about basic elements of, of gene expression. Some genes are kind of on all the time, right? We call those constitutive genes. We also call them housekeeping genes. You kind of always need to be able to, at a certain level, metabolize glucose or, or something like that, or, or make actin that makes up a cytoskeleton. So cert to a certain extent, some genes are kind of always on. Some genes are turned on at, under specific cues or at specific times, and we call those inducible genes, right? And the study of what turns a gene on or off, this is basically at the heart of a lot of molecular biology that happens. Right? So we're going to talk about, these are all the different steps that happen in gene expression, right? Um, here's your gene in the DNA, not much is happening. There's transcription initiation, so you make a primary messenger RNA transcript. There's processing, we talked about processing already. This is going to be capped and spliced and polydenylated. The introns here are being shown by these yellow bars. And you get this kind of green exon-containing mature messenger RNA at the end. The abundance of that messenger RNA is going to be controlled. There's an element of RNA stability, just like I talked about for proteins. There's also regulated degradation of messenger RNAs. We haven't talked about that, but in 3130, we talk about it a lot. So the amount of gene expression you're going to have is going to be also, it's going to be regulated by how much you transcribe. It's going to be regulated by how much you degrade. It's also going to be regulated by how well you translate. Okay, if the ribosome is recruited really well to this message, then you're going to make a lot of protein. But if the ribosome is not recruited quite so well to this message, then you're going to make less protein. And a lot of gene expression, and this is also something that's exceedingly current. There's a lot of research on that happening right now, including my group. Um, how is it that the cell controls how much protein is being made from the messenger RNA? And then once you make that protein, effectively, how much of that protein is active, right? You may have 100 copies of this protein in the cell, but what if they're all turned off? Well, it's like you didn't have any at all. That the activity of that protein may rely on, and we talked about this already a little bit, protein modifications. It may get phosphorylated. It may get monoubiquitylated, and that may control the activity of the protein. So now you go from, and that's very quick, right? You, the protein's already synthesized. If you want to basically control how much active protein you have in the cell, well, the quickest way to change that, the quickest way to flip that on, is to already have the protein made, and then you just switch it on by phosphorylating it in a certain spot, so now your modified protein is going to be activated. Uh, intracellular localization of the protein matters. You may have a protein that acts in only one part of the cell, and it's controlled by its... So, for example, there are some transcription factors that are DNA transcription factors that turn on transcription of genes, but they're not on because they're cytoplasmic. They're, they're, they're kept in the cytoplasm when the system is off. But then when the system is turned on, there's a signal to move them to the nucleus where they activate DNA transcription. Uh, we talked about protein degradation. The point of this slide a little bit is to talk about how there are many steps at which you can basically control whether gene expression is on or off. Right? And I give you a, kind of a capsule of, of what may be happening at each of those steps. The first thing that was studied uh, and where most regulation occurs still, it's thought to occur, especially in prokaryotes, is step one, okay? Whether a gene is on or off 
is often controlled by whether you transcribe it or not. And so we're going to talk about that most, at least for today. But we cover all these processes in 3130, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of them today, outside of just transcription initiation. Good? Okay. So I already alluded to this a little bit a couple classes ago. Some genes are regulated on the basis that they have variations in their core promoter sequences. We talked about this already. Uh, so here is uh, the sequence that will be recognized by sigma 70, right? There's a minus 10 and a minus 35. This is plus one. This is where you're going to start making a messenger RNA, right? I don't want you to memorize these sequences, but I do want you to appreciate that uh, there are different promoter sequences that are recognized by different sigma factors, and we talked about that already. Right? So here is, if, if, if all you have in the cell, or the vast majority of what you have in the cell is sigma 70, then these genes that lie downstream of the sequences that are recognized by sigma 70 are going to be expressed. On the other hand, if you're bacteria in question is undergoing a heat shock, well then that bacteria is going to sense that and then so sensing it is going to make more of this sigma 32 or it's going to activate sigma 32. That will displace to a certain extent sigma 70 from RNA polymerase and now you've got this other cohort of genes that are going to be activated. Right? Sigma's RNA polymerase that's loaded up with sigma 32 is going to transcribe a different cohort of genes than RNA polymerase that's loaded up with sigma 70. Okay? So you can imagine that there's a bunch of heat shock genes whose transcription normally is quite low, but when sigma 32 is engaging RNA polymerase, then that transcription is going to go up. All right? So that's one way that we can turn gene expression on or off. Now that is kind of uh, unique more so to prokaryotes, right? We talked about transcription initiation in, uh, in eukaryotes uh, last class, and we talked about the, the factors that recognize the promoter in eukaryotes for Paul 2 and if you remember the first one that bound was TBP, right? Tata binding protein. Around minus 30, there's what's called a Tata box. It's, it looks a bit like this. It's got lots of A's and T's in it. Who has a guess, just I'll throw this out there, who has a guess why both the coli and the eukaryotic promoters have AT-rich regions? Yeah, I saw you first. Awesome. Very nice. So, yeah, this is AT-rich, right? So this will be easier to melt, right? It's thought that uh, all promoter sequences, to start initiation of transcription, you've got to pull the strands apart. You've got to go from the closed promoter complex to the open promoter complex. And you're going to help make your life easier doing that if you've got an AT-rich region, because this is being held only together by two hydrogen bonds as opposed to a GC-rich region. Okay. So, uh, but we talked about last class how TBP you know, all Paul 2 promoters have a, or at least all Paul 2 promoters bind TBP. In theory, they may, they may sometimes actually don't have a Tata box, but they often have Tata boxes. But the point is that, so if all Paul 2 promoters recruit TBP, and they do, then how is it we decide which genes are on or off? We don't really have this sigma in, 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 in eukaryotes, right? This idea of, of different sigmas that recognize different core promoters. Well. In addition to sequences that are shown here, you can also have sequences outside of what we call this, this core promoter that will recruit other proteins, right? 
that whose recruitment to the DNA will be inducible. We talked about in induction, right? They'll be inducible. And when you induce their binding to the DNA, they help recruit the, D the RNA polymerase. And that's also true very much for eukaryotes. You're going to have a gene that it has all the core promoter elements, so in theory it'll bind TBP or RNA polymerase, all those different transcription factors, but that's going to happen at a very low level unless there's something else at that promoter that's helping more to bring RNA polymerase to that promoter. And we're going to talk about that kind of concept a little bit, a little bit now. Okay? So some different concepts for how to activate or um, repress gene expression. Okay? We talked about this just now. We've got some proteins that recruit or inhibit RNA polymerase binding. So this is, we're going to talk about this in the context of eukaryotes. Sorry, prokaryotes. What? Uh, in, the con in the context of prokaryotes. This is not RNA. When we talk about proteins that recruit RNA polymerase, we're not talking about sigma. Sigma is kind of part of RNA polymerase, right? We're talking about other proteins that control whether RNA polymerase with sigma on it will access a promoter. You've got negative regulation, which can act through a repressor, okay? You've got um, this particular situation. So there's, there's two different situations for negative regulation and two situations for positive regulation. Negative re regulation occurs through a repressor. In um, situation A, you've got uh, the DNA and a repressor molecule that is bound to the DNA, and it's basically keeping RNA polymerase off. It's blocking RNA polymerase getting to that promoter until a signal comes along. A molecular signal comes on, it binds the repressor, at which point the repressor falls off the DNA, and now the uh, accessibility of the promoter to RNA polymerase is now available. So, so that the, the, the RNA polymerase, the promoter has now been effectively opened up to RNA polymerase binding. And now you can make a messenger RNA. Okay? And that sequence that binds repressors, we call those operators. You can basically do it the other way around. Uh, the repressor will still repress transcription, but instead of binding the signal and getting off, it can bind the signal and get on, right? So that is, in this case, the default is on, right? The, the, the gene is on, but in the context of an inhibitory molecular signal, it binds the repressor, and now the repressor binds to the DNA and turns it off. Okay, so in both cases, this protein is repressing transcription, but it's just a question of whether the signal turns things on or off by whether the repressor gets on or off, okay? Now you've got positive regulation, okay? In this case, instead of a repressor, we've got an activator. There'll be an activator binding site. Now, the repressor binding site will usually be in very close proximity or it will overlap with the promoter. And that makes sense, right? The, the job of the repressor is to keep RNA polymerase off. So when it's bound, RNA polymerase can't get on because the promoter's basically blocked. Right? Activator binding sites will not be overlapping with the promoter. They're going to be off to the side a little bit of the promoter because they don't want to block RNA polymerase. They want to help RNA polymerase bind. What happens is you'll have this activator that will bind to the DNA. And when the activator is there, it will help. It's basically another, it, it, the activator physically makes a protein-protein interaction with RNA polymerase. Right? So when it's there, when it's on the DNA, it's basically another contact for RNA polymerase at that gene, right? RNA polymerase, it's looking for promoters, it wants to bind a promoter, uh, and that's gonna, it's going to have a certain affinity for that promoter, but what if in addition to the promoter, it actually had a protein that wants to also make a protein-protein contact to RNA polymerase at that promoter? So it's, 
it's basically got a certain amount of, active, uh, of, of affinity for the promoter, and then it's got basically bonus affinity for the promoter by virtue of this protein that's bound just adjacent to the promoter in this activator binding site, and it makes a protein-protein interaction for RNA polymerase. So now you get extra activation. And this is, when we talk about inducible genes and, 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 and transcription factors, uh, gene-specific transcription factors that will recruit RNA polymerase, this is often what we're talking about. Okay? You can imagine a situation where, and this, this is very true, uh, in eukaryotes, you're going to have uh, a gene that controls muscles, muscle differentiation, muscle, uh, and there's actually people at York that start, study this, John McDermott, a colleague of mine studies this. Um, a gene that's important for muscle development or the differentiation of muscle cells, and all these genes are turned off, except in muscle cells where they, the muscle cells express a muscle-specific transcription factor that will bind to a promoter upstream of muscle genes. And so what happens is because that activator, that muscle activator is present in muscle cells, are, that helps recruit RNA polymerase in those cells, and you get expression of those muscle genes, but only in that cell. Follow? So in this case, again, we have this positive regulation and this negative regulation. Uh, for the positive regulation, the default is on, right? Kind of the activator is always there. And in the context of a molecular signal, the molecular signal binds to the activator and it dissociates from the promoter region. And now that is no longer going to help recruit RNA polymerase and the gene expression is going to be drop, is going to drop. Or you can have positive regulation the other way where the default is off. And then you have an activating signal, a molecular signal that binds to the activator. In the context of the activator, the activator binds to the DNA, and now that gene is turned on. Okay. So just to summarize kind of what's going on in the slide, repressor genes repress transcription, activators activate transcription. And depending on whether your molecular signal tells your repressor or your activator to get on or off, you're going to have kind of two different paradigms for how this is going to work. The molecular activator, you know, so what's the molecular signal, right? The one that we're going to cover is basically a metabolite. So it's basically a small molecule that, or it's related to a metabolite. It will be a small molecule that just occurs in cells naturally. That's a cue to activate a particular gene program, right? When you're talking about eukaryotes and complicated things like development of cells, it could be a growth factor that binds on the outside of the cell that initiates a signaling cascade in the cell to basically make all these different molecules, kind of second messenger molecules inside the cell. And we'll talk a little bit about kind of a version of that also in, in, in a little while. The molecular signal can be, it can be another protein. It can be a protein that binds to the transcriptional activator, but only when it's phosphorylated, and it will only be phosphorylated when an extracellular stimulus like you're starving or you just ate, or it can be a, it can be a number of things. It's just, uh, but it's important to kind of just understand the concept of it a little bit right now. So, okay, the question is, I guess, are they enzymes? Is that what you mean? Those are the proteins. So if the, if the, act, if the activator or repressor is a small molecule, like ATP, well, then that wouldn't be an enzyme. If it's another protein, it may or may not be an enzyme, meaning an enzy a protein that catalyzes a chemical reaction. It may just be kind of a, 
a protein that acts as a scaffold. It's a protein whose job it is to just bind the other activator and help recruit it to the DNA. But that other protein doesn't necessarily do chemistry. It doesn't catalyze an enzyme, a chemical reaction. Or it may, it may catalyze a chemical reaction. So yeah, take 3130, we'll get into that. All right, so a lot of the original work that figured this out was studying the regulation of gene expression from the study of the lac operon in E. coli. This was famous work that was done by um, Jacob and Monod. This, this was a very exciting time to be doing molecular biology because it was basically the start of figuring out how cells do things, right? Instead of, I mean, we kind of understood a little bit how cells do things, but in a very rudimentary way. You know, you break open cells and they can make chemical reactions happen, but nobody really understood what was happening at a molecular level. But, um, so this observation came from the fact, and I'll draw it out. So this was basically uh, figured out by doing some work studying E. coli, its ability to grow in a solution where you've given it both glucose and lactose, right? What happens is the bacteria grow over time, so you're just measuring the growth of, this, of the bacteria in a flask, in a culture, and it's doing great, it's chugging along. But then all of a sudden it kind of stops growing for a second, and then it takes off again, right? Why is this? Why, why does this happen? Well, if you give a E. coli, and we'll talk about this over the course of the next few slides, if you give E. coli both glucose and lactose to grow on, it would rather grow on glucose. Glucose, as we're going to cover in section three, goes right into glycol the glycolytic pathway and Krebs cycle. So glucose is an easier fuel to burn. E. coli can grow on lactose, but it would rather grow on, grow on glucose. So what happens is the E. coli are growing on glucose until they basically run out of glucose, right? The glucose is gone. And so now there's basically a stress on the E. coli. It's saying, I'm starving. Where's the glucose? But then it senses, hey, there's lots of lactose floating around. I could grow on that instead. And so basically it changes its gene expression profile such that it makes the machinery it needs to grow on lactose. And that takes a little bit of time to set that all up. But once it sets it up, now it grows happily on lactose. Right, so there's actually a gene expression change that happens in this window, right? So that's kind of what I'm going to talk about a little bit here. So why do we need to um, regulate lactose metabolism? So here's lactose. We talked about it, right? Um, lactose is made of a glucose and a, a glucose and a galactose, and there's this beta-galactosidic bond between the glucose and the galactose. Uh, it's a glycosidic bond, and it's the enzyme that breaks down um, lactose into galactose and glucose is called beta-galactosidase. Okay? You don't necessarily want to be making beta-galactosidase, that enzyme, if you don't need to be breaking down lactose. Why would you do that? Why would you make this enzyme when there's no lactose 
to burn, or if there's lots of glucose around, which is, doesn't need beta-galactosidase, right? So beta-galactosidase is this enzyme that's specific for breaking this glycosidic bond between glucose and galactose, and if you don't need it, why would you make it? So um, it's wasteful for the cell to make this enzyme if A, there's no lactose, or B, there's lactose there, but there's also glucose, right? And so we're going to talk a little bit about how the cell only makes beta-galactosidase when it needs to, okay? Now one thing that you want to um, bear in mind that's going to be important in a few slides, beta-galactosidase by and large does this reaction. But as a side reaction, it also does this. It isomerizes lactose in what's called allolactose, which looks like this. Okay, you don't need to memorize the structure, but what I want you to bear in mind is that allolactose looks a little bit like lactose. It's not the same thing. It looks like lactose, um, and it's, it's, synthes it's, uh, its abundance will be dependent on both beta-galactosidase and the amount of lactose that's around. When there's lots of, a lactose, or lots of lactose around, beta-galactosidase will break lactose into these two things, and at a certain small rate, it'll make some allolactose too, okay? For reasons that are not clear yet, but hopefully will become clear in a second. Okay, so another thing you have to bear in mind when we're talking about uh, how genes are regulated in prokaryotes Okay, so this is our DNA of our gene that we're going to turn on, a typical operon. So what do I mean by operon? Okay, um, we'll talk about that in a second. So we've got our promoter, right? we talked about that. We talked about our operator, we talked about that. This is where a repressor will bind, and it overlaps or is basically immediately adjacent to the promoter. So if something's bound to the operator, you're not going to get RNA polymerase able to bind the promoter. And you've got an activator binding site, which is a little bit off to the side, right? So if there's something that binds here, and it has the ability to help recruit RNA polymerase, well then, if, if that transcriptional activator is bound, then it's going to turn, help turn this gene on, okay? And then downstream of the promoter, you know, plus one is in and around here, and this is something that's unique, or generally unique to prokaryotes, is this idea of multiple genes on one transcription unit. So in this case, we've got genes A, B, and C. Here's plus one. The transcriptional terminator will be somewhere down here. Okay? And the point to take away from this is that when the promoter gets turned on, one messenger RNA is going to be made that has the open reading frames for gene A and gene B and gene C on that same message. All right? So you're basically going to be making three proteins from one messenger RNA. That's generally specific for prokaryotes, okay? Eukaryotes don't work that way. And it has to do with how the ribosome recognizes where to start translation, right? Does anyone remember what we talked about with, with the sequence that um, the ribosome's looking for in prokaryotes? Does anyone remember that? The shine Delgarno? Does that ring a bell? I, talk, I mentioned it, right? Someone nod. <laughs> okay. I mean, we're going to get to the, I'll probably cover it a little bit also, but um, the ribosome, when it's on a messenger RNA and looking for a place to start translation, it's looking for a sequence upstream of the AUG called the Shine Delgarno. And that's where the ribosome binds and starts translating. And so you can imagine that when this gene is transcribed as one messenger RNA, 
is gene A and gene B and gene C. So there's an AUG here and an AUG here and an AUG here, right? And upstream of the AUG, there's a Scheindel-Garnot sequence. Scheindel-Garnot, Scheindel-Garnot, Scheindel-Garnot. This is what the ribosome is looking for to start translating in prokaryotes. So that means one messenger RNA can code for three genes, three proteins. But the ribosome is not looking for Scheindel-Garnots in eukaryotes. Does anyone remember what the ribosome is looking for? The cap. How many caps are on a messenger RNA in eukaryotes? One, right? There's only one cap on a messenger RNA in eukaryotes. So generally, messenger RNAs in eukaryotes have one gene on them, but messenger RNAs in prokaryotes often have multiple genes on them. And the ribosome can start independently at each of these. But in eukaryotes, translation starts at the cap. And then you're going to get generally translation of one message. Often the genes that are transcribed in an operon, they're related, okay? So for example, in the LAC operon, so we've got uh, the promoter, the operator, and we've got three protein coding genes, LACZ, or LACZ if you're American, LACZ, which is beta-galactosidase, LACY, and LACA. Okay? And these are all genes that are related to lactose metabolism. So that makes sense, right? If we're turning on the lactose metabolizing machinery, well, we should probably turn all the genes that you need on at the same time. Well, one way you do that is you put all three of these genes under the control of one operon. Okay? They're showing you here uh, the operator sequence. Okay? So um, again, you don't need to memorize it, but this is just showing you that this is the sequence that LAC repressor is looking for. The repressor sequence, the repressor that's going to bind to the operator and, and inhibit transcription. So let's just go through this a little bit. The operon ma is made up of the genes of interest to be expressed, and usually they're functionally linked. So for the LAC operon, it's LACZ and LACY and LACA, right? The site of RNA polymerase binding, that's the promoter. Uh, the binding site for transcriptional activators, okay? So uh, here's an activator binding site here. These are often called enhancers. Right? And the binding site for transcriptional repressors, and those are called operators, right? These regulatory sites are often, obviously, in close proximity to the start site of transcription, which is called plus one. We already talked about that. The first nucleotide that's transcribed is plus one, and we draw plus one by this little bent arrow. This is where plus one is, and the polymerase is going to go that way. Okay? So, the protein that binds to um, the LAC operon and represses its transcription is called the LAC repressor. Okay? In the absence of lactose, it forms a homotetramer. So you guys know what that is. Having, we've talked about these kinds of already, things already. A tetramer is a former. It's got, it's a, it's got four subunits, and it's a homotetramer. So it's four of the same thing. It's four, protein, four LAC repressors together, right? So, so hemoglobin was a heterotretramer because it was made up of two different things, right? Alpha subunit and beta subunit, two of each. This is a homotetramer, four lac repressors, making up one kind of uh, functional lac repressor, kind of like a, like a holo, rep, holo repressor. And they bind, so you've got 
actually more than one operator sequence here. You've got operator one, operator two, and operator three. And what happens is they bind to either an O1 and an O3 or an O1 and an O2, like this or like this. Either arrangement will basically block access of the promoter to RNA polymerase. Okay? So when lac repressor is bound to these sequences, they basically twist up the DNA such that the promoter is not accessible by uh, RNA Paul. Okay? Where is the, the gene for lac repressor is here. So this lac I, lac I codes for lac repressor. All right? This promoter, it's got its own promoter, PI, and it's always on. Right? This is a constitutive promoter. This is an inducible promoter. The cell is always making some lac repressor. Okay? And then that lac repressor will bind to the operators and turn the expression of the operon off unless, unless what? The inducer for lac repressor, the small molecule signal, is this. It's allolactose, right? So that's why I was talking about allolactose before. When are you going to have allolactose? Well, you're going to have allolactose when there's lactose, right? When lactose is present, then at a certain rate, beta-galactosidase is going to convert it to allolactose. So basically, when lactose is present, some allolactose will also be present, and that will bind to lac repressor. And as a result, lac repressor will dissociate from the DNA, and now you're going to be able to turn on transcription of, of the gene. Now, there's a bit of a chicken and egg here thing going on here, right? How can you make allolactose if the operon is off and there's no beta-galactosidase, right? I told you that synthesis of allolactose relies on beta-galactosidase. Well, synthesis of beta-galactosidase relies on the gene being on, the operon being on, right? Well, the reality is when genes, and this is a pervasive theme throughout gene expression, when a gene is off, it's not completely off. And when a gene is on, a gene being turned on just means that the expression of the gene has gone way up. All right? So even when lac repressor is on, the DNA, and repressing transcription of this unit, there's going to be a little bit of transcription still. So there's always at least a little bit of beta-galactosidase floating around in the cell. So you can imagine then what happens. The cells are floating around. Uh, in your colon, you just have a milkshake, so there's lots of lactose floating around. The lactose goes into the cell, and the little bit of lactose that goes in the cell uh, gets converted, sorry, the, a lot of lactose goes in the cell. The little bit of beta-galactosidase that's there starts converting it, and a little bit of uh, that converted lactose gets isomerized into allolactose. Allolactose binds to the lac repressor. It falls off. And now you can really make lots of that beta-galactosidase and the associated genes to metabolize that ice cream or glass of milk you had. Okay? We really rely... Yeah. There are enhancers here, but I guess they're not drawn. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. The question is, are there activators here or enhancers? The answer is yes, but 
I guess it's not drawn here. So we take advantage of this promoter a lot in the lab. Okay? When we want to make a lot of a, a synthetic protein of interest in the lab, what we'll often do is clone that gene of interest and put it in a plasmid downstream of a LAC promoter. All right? And then when we want to make lots of that protein, we turn the promoter on. But instead of using lactose, which gets converted to allolactose, we use this molecule, uh, IPTG, which looks like, at least for the enzyme, at least for lacropressor, it looks like allolactose. Obviously, it's not the same as allolactose. But the bit of it that binds to the lacropressor looks like allolactose. So we can add this chemical to our growing E. coli cells, and that will turn on the lac operon, and it will uh, activate transcription of whatever gene we cloned downstream of that promoter. So if you're in the lab, and you're making lots of protein in the lab, of a, of, if you've cloned a, a human gene or whatever gene to, for expression in E. coli, you're going to be weighing this out at some point. You're going to be weighing out some IPTG and using it. OK, so that covers the idea of, of lack repressor and negative regulation, right? But that's not the end of the story, right? We talked about how you can have negative regulation, but also we talked about how you have positive regulation, right? So the positive regulation with respect to the lac operon refers to this CAMP receptor protein, okay? which is um, abbreviated CRP. Okay? It's also abbreviated CAP, but for the purpose of this slide, we're going to talk about it, CRP. Okay? This protein binds near the lac promoter, well, promoted, This protein binds near the lac promoter when it's bound to cyclic AMP. Okay, what's cyclic AMP? Cyclic AMP is a signaling molecule that's synthesized by the enzyme adenylate cyclase in response to low levels of glucose. So when glucose levels are low, adenylate cyclase gets turned on and makes this cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP is, it looks like AMP, but it's been, do I have a figure of it? Cyclic AMP, it looks like AMP, but it's been, the phosphate's been cyclized. Okay? It makes a cyclic ring. Um, it's basically a messenger molecule to signal to many proteins in the cell, glucose is low. I'm kind of starving. I am not happy. And this is conserved. The, the use of cyclic AMP as a glucose sensor is conserved between coli all the way up to us. So cyclic AMP is also relevant in humans. So basically, you can imagine that if I look at my graph here, um, down here would be low, and up here right? when we were burning glucose and there was lots of glucose, cyclic AMP levels would be low. And then once we ran out of glucose, that, this is one of the things that would change. Right? Through all of this, there was lactose. So in theory, lac repressor is off through all of this. So why is it that we only turned on the expression of the lac operon starting here? Well, the difference is, is that down here, cyclic AMP levels are low, and up here, cyclic AMP levels are high. Right? You don't want to, even though lactose is there, you don't necessarily want to be turning on the lac operon if you've already got glucose there to burn instead. Right? 
So when glucose levels are low, cyclic AMP is made. It binds to this CRP, this cyclic AMP receptor protein. This binds to the activator sequence around the LAC operon, and it's got a binding site for RNA polymerase. So it helps recruit RNA polymerase to the LAC operon in response effectively to low glucose. Okay? So thus, the LAC operon is controlled by both negative and positive regulation. Right? The negative regulation responds to the presence of lactose. So you've got this LAC repressor, LAC-I protein, that's bound to the operators. Okay? You're always making LAC-I. And when uh, lactose is absent, it's going to be bound here and the gene expression is going to be off, right? It's going to be keeping this off. In this situation also, glucose is high. Therefore, cyclic AMP levels are low, so there will not be any CRP bound near the promoter to help turn it on. Okay? So in this case, it's off. Now, you've burned all your glucose up, okay? So cyclic AMP levels go up. But your lactose is still absent, right? So you still no point. Why would you make the lactose metabolizing enzymes if there's no lactose, right? Well, because cyclic AMP is high, CRP and cyclic AMP are bound to the promoter, and they're helping. They're trying to recruit RNA polymerase, but lac repressor is still there, blocking it. So you still get no gene expression. Okay. Now, if glucose is high and lactose is present, so that's the basically what we drew out here, right? Lactose is present, glucose is present, so this is kind of down at the bottom of the, of the graph. So because lactose is present, you're going to make some allolactose. The allolactose is going to bind to lac repressor, and it's going to dissociate from the operators. Okay? So now the promoter is accessible to RNA polymerase. So in theory, RNA polymerase can bind and start transcription, but it doesn't do that so well. Right? It's not... It's not it's not recruited as effectively to the promoter as well as it could be. And so you do get some messenger RNA expression because the promoter is accessible, but it's a low level of gene expression. So you're starting to make some like Z, some like Y, some like A. Now, glucose is low and lactose is present. So this corresponds to the top of my graph here. Cyclic AMP levels go up. Lactose is present, so allolactose knocks lactopressor off of the DNA. So now, both the promoter is accessible and CRP is helping recruit RNA polymerase to the promoter. Now you're going to get lots of expression. So you've got both positive and negative regulation controlling expression from the promoter on the lac operon. The cyclic AMP is basically the signaling molecule that is causing CRP to go on the DNA. So if we went back to our model back here, we're talking about, so which situations are we talking about? For lac repressor, we are talking about this A. When the repressor is bound, the gene is off, and a molecular signal, in this case allolactose, binds the repressor and gets off, and now you get transcription. That's the negative. For negative relation, we're talking about situation A. For positive regulation, we're talking about situation D. There's a molecular signal, in this case it's cyclic AMP, which binds to an activator, CRP. In the context of those two coming together, they bind the DNA and turn the gene on. Okay. 
Our molecular signals are allolactose and cyclic AMP. Questions on lacoperon? Because then we're gonna we're gonna kind of shift gears a bit now and talk about some other elements of gene expression. You're just gonna get like a one or two slide intro to a lot of different things, uh, just so you have some understanding of it, and then the hope is that if you continue on in molecular biology, you'll learn more about it. Yeah, what's up? Yeah. So Y and C is it getting off? So so this is this this enzyme that's 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 tying up the operators here. Okay, this is lacropressor. It's a homotetramer, so you can kind of see there's four of them there. And uh, it will bind to the DNA unless allolactose is there. When allolactose is present, which means lactose is present, it binds to lacropressor and it actually changes the conformation of lacropressor such that it doesn't like binding DNA anymore and it falls off. That makes the promoter accessible, but you're only going to get a very low level of basal transcription just because RNA polymerase is kind of ambivalent about binding this promoter. It's, eh, it's all right. It's an okay promoter. I've seen better promoters, but I'd really like it if something else was there trying to encourage me to get on that promoter, and, and it relies on CRP to do that. LAC-I is always, the LAC-I expression is always on, correct. Yeah, this is constitutive. Synthesis of LAC-repressor, LAC-I, is constitutive. Some beautiful experiments that were done to do this. If you're interested in kind of history of science, there's some nice write-ups about this, just Wikipedia or whatever. Really, really exciting kind of time to be doing stuff. This, these papers came out and people were just what is happening out of Paris. You know, this was all done in Paris. Okay. So we're going to talk about a couple of different mechanisms of gene regulation um, before we um, end for the day. Oh yeah, there's no, uh, a reminder, there's no lecture on Thursday because we got this crazy two-day reading week, which makes no sense to me, but this is the first time we've ever had that, kind of, or at least since I've been here. Um, so there's no class on Thursday, but I'm still going to do office hours if you want to come in. Uh, so that'll be 10.30 to 11.30. So, um, so what are riboswitches? Riboswitches are metabolite-sensing domains in messenger RNAs that control gene expression. So one of the important critical elements of riboswitches is this idea that RNAs fold into shapes, right? We've already talked about that a little bit. We talked about how the sequence of a tRNA folds into the shape of a tRNA, and ribosomal RNA folds into a ribosome. Well, if you recall, right, if you're talking about, and I, and I, I talked about this a few slides back, but you've got, so if we're, in, if we're in prokaryotes, there's no cap, right? There's just this triphosphate. And let's say, for example, that we're on a 3' hydroxyl. There's no poly A tail in eukaryotes. Sorry, prokaryotes. And let's say that this messenger RNA only has a single gene on it, gene A. 
So we talked about this a little bit, and you want to kind of be relatively familiar about this. Your life will be a lot easier if you get this kind of down pat in your head. So between the AUG, the start, and the stop codon, this is what we call the open reading frame, the ORF. But there's a space between plus one and the AUG, where the ribosome starts, right? We call this the five prime UTR, meaning the five prime untranslated region. And this would be the three prime UTR, the space between the stop codon and the end of the messenger RNA. So this is part of the messenger RNA that the ribosome doesn't translate, right? It obviously translates between the start and the stop codon. But the start codon is not at plus one. There's always some nucleotides between plus one and the start codon. Right? Plus one is not the A of AUG. There's always some space there. There's some sequence there. Okay? So whereas the evolution is going to conspire to dictate the nucleotides in the open reading frame that are going to make the best protein, right? You want your protein to have a function, and so what nucleotides you have in the open reading frame is going to be dictated by, okay, what protein are you trying to make, right? But there's no evolutionary reason to necessarily restrict the nucleotides of the 3' UTR and the 5' UTR. You can imagine that they can kind of fold into a shape that does something, right? Because they don't need to code for a protein, so they could, those nucleotides could have a function more like, well, who knows what? Well, it turns out that, that that's relevant for riboswitches. So we got this metabolite sensing domain in the 5' untranslated region of messenger RNA. And this is predominantly seen in bacteria, but there are some examples in eukaryotes also. Okay? The genes that contain riboswitches typically code for proteins that are involved in the synthesis of a molecule that's difficult to make, or it's expensive to make. Okay? Uh, we're going to talk about TPP, thymine pyrophosphate, and FMN. Both of these, these are basically cofactors. These are basically small molecules that activate, that enzymes need to do chemical reactions. But it's not easy to make them. The cell needs to actually uh, be careful about how much of these it's making because why would it waste energy making more than it needs, right? It's difficult to make these, so the enzyme kind of wants to regulate how much effort it makes to, to, to synthesize them, okay? Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of genes that, that code for these things that have riboswitches in them. The riboswitch is made up of two elements, an aptamer and an expression platform. So hopefully that will become clearer now. Okay, so here's your messenger RNA. Okay? It's got a 5' prime end and a 3' prime end. Okay? There's a region in the 5' prime UTR of the messenger RNA which we call the aptamer. Okay? So what's an aptamer? An aptamer, so I just talked about how in the 5' prime UTR, you know, this is not coding for protein. So in theory, that RNA could fold into a shape that could have an important function. And that's what happens. In the context of a riboswitch, that's what happens. The aptamer folds into a shape that binds the metabolite that the gene's going to make. Okay, so here's the ribosome binding site. So you can imagine that the AUG is somewhere around here. And this messenger RNA is going to make an enzyme that makes TPP. All right? So... How can we make sure we don't make more TPP-making enzyme than we need to? Well, you've got an aptamer that binds TPP. So if there's lots of TPP floating around in the cell, it's going to bind to the aptamer, and that's going to control whether or not you make the protein. Okay? So imagine that in this UTR here, that RNA folds into a structure that actually binds the metabolite that this enzyme is going to make. 
there's two ways that that uh, can influence gene expression. In the first case here, A, TPP binds to the aptamer, and when that happens, it makes a rho-independent terminator. Okay, so RNA polymerase is synthesizing this gene from the 5' end, and this part of the aptamer comes out, and let's say this is a situation where there's lots of TPP already in the cell. Either you ate a meal with lots of TPP in it, or it just made a bunch of enzymes to synthesize this, so TPP levels are high. TPP binds the aptamer as soon as it comes out of RNA polymerase, and when it binds, the RNA changes conformation to make a poly-U, a rho-independent terminator. So RNA polymerase immediately just stops. It doesn't even bother making the whole mess of the rest of the messenger RNA. Okay. The alternate situation is where TPP binds and the RNA changes conformation such that the ribosome binding site is not accessible to the ribosome anymore. Okay, so basically this ribosome binding site will be in two conformations this one where it's accessible to the ribosome, or this one where it's inaccessible to the ribosome, based on whether TPP is present. So basically the presence of the metabolite switches the conformation of the message to basically control whether you're going to make this enzyme or not. Either it creates a terminator, which abrogates or inhibits uh, transcription. You immediately stop transcription, even before you've even made the rest of the gene. Or you make the messenger RNA, but the ribosome doesn't have the ability to make the protein, the enzyme anymore. This is an example of riboswitches in eukaryotes. This is very common in prokaryotes and the bacteria, right? Riboswitches have also been found in eukaryotes. You can imagine that this is a gene that makes a particular metabolite. It's actually TPP in eukaryotes. But instead of controlling termination or translation, it controls splicing. So when TPP is present, it changes the structure around an intron-exon junction. And now the spliceosome won't splice the message anymore. Whether or not the intron gets spliced or not depends on whether TPP is present or not. Okay? So riboswitches take advantage of this ability for RNA to fold into a shape that can do something. This aptamer actually folds into a shape. It's like an active site of an enzyme. It folds into a shape that likes to bind TPP. And so you can imagine that for messenger RNAs that have riboswitches in them, the sequence of the 5' UTR is also very important. If it doesn't have the right sequence, it won't fold into the right shape. And if it doesn't fold into the right shape, it won't bind the metabolite. So that's pretty cool. That's actually really neat. And there's murmurs happening that this will, you won't, you know, in the next 10 years, there might be a Nobel Prize about this, and then you can say, yeah, I you can tell your parents, yeah, I knew about that already. I took, I took 2020, and we covered it. So uh, it, won't be a, it won't be a surprise to you, right? This has not yet won a Nobel Prize, but it probably will. Any questions on that? So we talked about these rho-independent terminators, right, that require a hairpin and then a U-sequence after the hairpin, right? The point is the hairpin will only form when TPP is bound because when TPP binds, 
when TPP is absent, the aptamer folds into a different shape that makes the formation of the hairpin impossible. So when TPP binds, the aptamer folds into a new shape where now that terminator hairpin can form. Well, when the hairpin forms, you make a row-independent terminator. So it, remember we talked about how you make the hairpin and it pulls the RNA out of the active site of the polymerase. And then, but if the hairpin doesn't form, then RNA polymerase keeps going. One of my colleagues in Quebec, actually, he's doing really cool work. There's a really neat paper where he's made a drug. Imagine you had a molecule that wasn't TPP, but it looked like TPP. It's still bound the aptamer. And as a result, the bacteria thinks that there's lots of TPP around. And so it doesn't make its TPP enzymes. It's TPP synthesizing enzymes, but it needs TPP. It can't use the drug that looks like TPP to do its to do metabolism, but because the drug looks like TPP, it forms the inhibitory conformation, and now you don't make the enzyme and the bacteria die. So it's basically an antibiotic. It's pretty cool. Except it's not TPP, the drug. It's actually more related to guanine. Okay, questions on, other questions on riboswitches? Where am I at here? I have a tendency to kind of rabble on when it's something that I like. Sorry, but it's cool. So I already alluded to this a little bit, okay? And this gets, I want, I want to cover at least alternative splicing before we break. This gets a little bit to what I talked about at the beginning of the class when I talked about the number of genes between coli and humans, right? Why is it that humans have not a hundred times more genes than coli, even though we're so much more complex than them? Well, the reality is we're capable of making more than one protein from one, from one gene, right? Beetle and Tatum, if you if you've follow your history of science a bit, Beetle and Tatum won a Nobel Prize for saying one gene makes one enzyme. One gene, one enzyme, right? Well, that's actually, we think, wrong now. It's generally right. The idea is right. But what if we could make more than one enzyme from the same gene? Well, we can do that with this concept of alternative splicing, okay? You can imagine a piece of DNA that's got a five prime splice site and more than one option for a three prime splice site, okay? So you make your tri primary transcript, it gets capped and it gets polyadenylated, and depending on which of these three prime splice sites you recognize, you're either going to include this kind of diagonally shown box, it's either going to be retained in the messenger, or the mature messenger RNA, or it's going to be spliced out of the mature messenger RNA. And this messenger RNA that retained that region may code for a substantially different protein than this messenger RNA that lost that one. So depending on which three prime splice site you recognize, you make two different messenger RNAs that two do, do two different things. Okay. Um, similarly, we talked about, remember we were talking about my, my, my story about um, Yosemite Sam and, and polydenylation, right? Uh, you can imagine DNA polymerase uh, runs down the DNA. And basically, remember that sequence that came out of RNA polymerase that the uh, endonuclease recognized? So I drew it out last time. It's running down the DNA, and the RNA comes out. And remember, there was this sequence. A, A, U, A, A, A. 
and there's an endonuclease that will recognize that, cut the messenger RNA in that place. The piece that comes off on this side gets the poly A tail. The piece that's still attached to RNA polymerase acts as the fuse that the uh, exonuclease chases after polymerase to terminate it. Well, imagine that the sequence that comes out is not perfect. Instead of AAUAA, it's AAUUAA. It looks like it, but it's not perfect. Okay? Well, what's going to happen? Well, sometimes the cleavage machinery is going to recognize it and cut it, and sometimes it's not going to. And so what you end up is more than one polyadenylation site. If cleavage and polyadenylation happens at site one, you get this messenger RNA. But if the cleavage and polyadenylation machinery doesn't recognize A1, and instead it recognizes A2, well then this region between A1 and A2 is going to be included in the mature message. And this might do a different thing than, than this one. Okay. So then what do you expect with respect to the A1 consensus sequence? Obviously, A1 has to be the one that is not a perfect one. If A1 was perfect, then cleavage and polyadenylation would always happen here, and that process happening at A2 would be moot. It's the, you never get a chance to do cleavage and polyadenylation at A2 because it always happens at A1. So obviously A1 has to be somewhat imperfect, sometimes recognized, sometimes not, since A2 is downstream of A1. So there's a, I'll, I'll cover this quickly, there's this combination of alternative splicing and alternative polyadenylation that make two different proteins from the same gene, okay? So we've got uh, the thyroid, which creates this protein calcitonin, and the brain that makes this protein CGRP, okay? Basically, you've got your primary transcript, you've got two alternate ways of doing splicing, and two alternative polyadenylation sites, okay? Excuse me. In the thymus, you get cleavage of polyadenylation site one recognized. So this is your primary messenger RNA, and that gets spliced into this. And then a protease comes along. We talked about um, one of the protein modifications that can happen is uh, uh, cleavage of the protein from kind of a pre-protein into a mature protein, uh, and that will make this protein calcitonin. But the same gene. In brain, the, this poly A site is not recognized. Instead, this poly A site is recognized. And so this is what your pre-mRNA looks like. Exon 5 looks better to the splicing machinery than exon 4. If exon 5 isn't there, then it's going to use exon 4. But if exon 5 is there, then exon 4 doesn't get included in the mature messenger RNA. Instead, exon 5 gets included. So you get this alternative splicing event where exon 5 gets put in the mature messenger RNA instead of exon 4. That gets translated, and instead of the protease cleaving down into this calcitonin protein, you get uh, the protease cleaves it down into the CGRP. So you're actually capable of making two completely different proteins from the same messenger RNA, depending on whether you're in brain or thymus. And so this gets back to this idea of, of one gene, one enzyme. So that's not formally true, right? Especially in higher eukaryotes, it's thought that you know, the, the number keeps going up. I'm not even sure where, at the one point it was 60%, I think now it's 80 or 90% of proteins in humans have some sort of alternative splicing event that effectively makes more than one protein from the same gene. 
And I'm not going to get into RNAi today. So uh, we'll, if, I, if there's no more questions on this, then we'll pick this up next class.